Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Love Essie, the podcast. This is episode 44. And this week, I'm talking about Archangel's Heart by Nalini Singh, which is book nine in the Guild Hunter series. So as I tend to usually do, I'm going to first talk about it without spoilers, or I mean, as spoiler free as one can be. And then, you know, there'll be a pause. And when I return from the pause, uh, I'll spoil it. So uh, in this book, book nine, we go back to Raphael and Elena. Um, I've mentioned it a few times now that this series, we do spend time with the couple from the first book multiple times throughout the series, um, which is different from the Side Changeling series, where each book is always a different couple. um, And we only see snippets of other couples in other people's books. Like they're there in the background, but they're not the main focus. That isn't the case for the Guilt Hunter series, right? The first three books are Raphael and Elena, then we leave them, you know, then we come back, we leave them again, and here we are, and we have returned to them. Of course, we've returned to them, and we're going to, you know, the book after this one, we do, like, leave them. We're just like, oh, deuces, bye. Um, um, but we are constantly sort of hanging out with them, then circling away to hang out with someone else, and then circling back to hang out with them. So if you've been reading along the series, and of course, you know who Raphael and Elena are, this is the very first book you're picking up. If this is the very first time you're hearing about the series, Raphael is the archangel of New York City. But what that really means is, you know, New York City is his base city, but he is the archangel of North America. Um, In this world, right, each archangel takes sort of a chunk of territory in the world and they rule that territory and we'll have a city they usually have their home base from but that's that's how that sort of works and then elena is his elena Devereux is his uh she's called a consort right his you know and I don't think this is necessarily a faded mate. Well, yes and no. I don't know if this is a... I'll have to bring that up later. Because I think it is a faded mate sort of scenario. So that's a trope that you like. Um, I feel like there are a couple that could possibly be a part of that trope. Now, like, if you haven't read the series, and again, this is your very first book, um, there are already a couple... So this isn't a romance in the sense that you're just like, I wonder what will happen and bad things like they have misunderstandings and don't speak to each other and do dumb shit and then end up together. And you're like reading through the book and you get to the end and you're like, if y'all had just like had that conversation or hadn't, you know, had that misunderstanding. No, I think what's very different about this book is that this book really delves into um, Elena's history on her mother's side um in a previous book we'd started to get or we'd gotten some backstory or some history about her father that she didn't know so elena learned these facts about her father as we learned them 
Um, in this book, Elena's learning facts about her mother's side as we learn them. Um, sometimes I feel like when we're following other characters in the series and we're not with Raphael and Elena, we sometimes learn things that Raphael and Elena, well, Raphael might know, but Elena might not know, but we as a reader now know because we were with these other people. Anyway, so this book, um, I actually wrote down um, because this, for me specifically, I feel like the title of this book is very, it's doing something um, kind of, I feel like it's very interesting and you're probably gonna be like, eh? It's titled Archangel's Heart, right? Okay, cool. I mean, seems kind of self-explanatory. Um, most of the books in the series have Archangel something. But I wrote this down because in this specific book, right, as we uncover all of this information about Elena's mother's past, right, she was the heart of Elena's family, right? And she is also Raphael's heart. So she is, Elena herself is literally Raphael's heart. Like he, you know, is like, I can't like survive without you kind of thing. But at the same time, we're also learning about, you know, her mother's side of the family and how important, you know, all of those details. And so it's like, and not only that, Raphael, um, Elena has also created a space, created, turned his enclave home, you know, mansion or whatever, into what feels like a home, right? Which I'm sure, like, we've all had experiences. There are spaces that don't feel welcoming, don't feel, you know, people might live there, but you're just like, mm, okay, like, feels kind of cold and whatever. And then there are spaces that you literally feel like you've walked into the warm embrace of, you know, a loving family. And that is sort of what Elena has been creating in Raphael's fancy mansion on the cliffs. Um, and so this title to me is another way of Nalini being like, this is about, like, this book really is about, you know, family ties right family history what it means when you don't have the history what it means as you learn the history because i'm sure we've all had instances where our parents or our other family members have said stuff that you're like skirt skirt what grandma did what grandpa what wait uncle uncle so-and-so what you know like you start especially once you get to be an adult that's when you start to learn the family secrets um even when as a kid you believe that there were no secrets in your family you get to adult age and they're just like oh actually uh, we have uh, some secrets we just never told you because eh, you were a child uh but now you're grown and you're just like wait what um and so we get to sort of see that play out in this book and i think a really sort of interesting fashion that makes sense for the world that the book is set in now the other thing that i was like "Ooh, gotta talk about um and i'm going to be talking about it in this section and then again in a lot more detail in the spoiler section um i was at a book club meeting with i think it's i should have looked this up i'm pretty sure it's the way library and 
Andrea Martucci, the host of Shelf Love Podcast, which if you haven't listened to, you have to, because she does such a, she has, she's awesome. You just, just go listen. They're so good. Like, she always has such amazing insights into things. Like, I am always, like, I feel like I'm always learning when I listen to her episodes. Anyway, she mentioned some, the book that we had to read um, had vampires in it. Um, it's a Rebecca Weatherspoon third book in the, is it Soul Sisters? I should know this because, you know, I should, but whatever. Um, it's, you know, vampire sorority and, you know, that means people aren't, I was right about the name of the book, Soul to Keep. I was like, oh no, did I fuck up the name? I did not fuck up the name. So there at least is that, um, (laughs) I was like, oh no. And it's by Rebecca Weatherspoon. Um, and it's quite enjoyable. And it is the last book um in the Vampire Sorority series. Anyway, Andrew Martucci bring brought up I wish I'd like written it down or I don't know, recorded the screen. She was saying something about in a psychology book, something about how sex is tied to life and death. Um, and you know, what does that really mean? What does that concept really mean when we're looking at paranormals where people are immortal and aren't, you know, just going to drop it, you know, within a what we consider a normal lifespan? And, you know, in the case of the series, I feel like that is one of the questions or one of the, in this series, right, we've got vampires and we've got angels and we've got archangels and then we've got humans or mortals, Mortals have a normal, have what our lifespan, right? Assuming all goes well and you don't get, you don't die of anything other than old age, you're probably hitting 100, maybe 105. Vampires, depending on what they're doing, can hit, you know, into the thousands, right? Dimitri is a thousand year old vampire. He is old, okay? Um, Angels, same archangels girl um there are what are called ancients in this book and they are you know not like 2500 years old but like 25,000 years old so what does sex really mean when it's not like you can you're not worried about death so once you take away the worry of like oh <gasps> If I just step off, you know, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm definitely going to die. Once you sort of take away that sort of fear or limit, then what does it really, how do you navigate things like, you know, actual sex, sexuality, you know, and the extremes in which you might go? for you know quote unquote the chase of pleasure right because all of a sudden now it's like well if i was human i could not just like drive stakes through your hands to restrain you because you gonna bleed out and die <laughs> like, it's a wrap <laughs> like oh no unless you're into you know is it necrophilia when you're into fucking dead people whatever but if you're like vampire angel and you're old enough and strong enough, you don't die. So 
Is that how you shame people instead of, you know, doing normal things like scarves or, or ropes? It's like a stake through your hand. Like, what? You know, what is it, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, and I feel like in this series, we get really clear examples of it in this book, but it throughout this series, we keep being shown that those who sort of devolve into just seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake eventually get bored and eventually the only things that bring them pleasure don't bring anyone else pleasure you know all pain and torture for everyone else while one person's like oh this is so much fun i love their screams it's great did you hear how she hit that no did you hear how he hit that no while they were screaming because you know i don't know their eyeballs were being ripped out or by you know weird shit that you're just like eh? why would you but i mean if you're gonna be around for a few hundred years a few thousand years a few hundreds of thousands of years <laughs> i mean missionary would would definitely be dull like even the stuff that we think is weird right now they'd be like eh i did that back in my like 1500s but now in my like 2700s, not nah. like, you know what I mean? Like it's, what does that really mean? And what does that entail? Um, and it is something um, that I think is interesting to see because I think one of the things that Nalini Singh is trying to show us is those characters who have a really sort of strong grounding in family relationships and family bonds that are positive um are very unlikely to consider being that level of depraved and sadistic it's just not even a thought um there are two vampires that we've met before we get to this book who have connections to you know, their mortal lineage, as in they were, you know, not everyone in their family became a vampire. And of course, their immediate family has passed, but that immediate family left children who left children who left children, and they are in contact with them. And I feel like in both cases, those characters feel, are very grounded in how they, um, it doesn't mean that they haven't suffered and like life is hunky-dory and everything's perfect because both of them have gone through some shit because again you can't live for over 200 years and not have gone through some shit but their understanding of how relate not how no not their understanding of how relationships work but they're they aren't trying to sort of keep their existence from boring them by reverting to cruelty or reverting to um sadism there that doesn't have any appeal to them and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they are still very much bonded to people who don't live forever like they do who are going to be born live their life and die and they are going to be going through that you know circle of life kind of thing with them so this book, right, just really focuses in on Elena 
And I feel like we learn interesting tidbits about different characters that we might not have expected or whatever. Um, because a lot of the stuff that had been going up on going on up until this book has either been on pause or you kind of have to wait to see what happens next, right? And so it's not like as opposed to she could have just Nalini could have just been like, okay, it's been five years and you know, stuff continues. We are seeing what's sort of happening in kind of in the in-between, um, which I think then allows for us to really get enmeshed in the story without it taking away from the sort of overarching, like, story that started, you know, like, book one kind of thing. So this one, I mean, Archangel's Heart, definitely is I think different from other romances in the sense like I said the couple is already together and at no point the things that may keep Raphael and Elena apart in this book are all completely external this is not about a couple whose relationship is in peril no this is a couple who has worked really hard to get to to get comfortable with each other they trust each other they believe in each other so this isn't about us seeing them deal with you know feelings of anxiety and you know worry about each of them fucking shit up now they're solid now is there anxiety because shit is happening in the world that can negatively impact them, yes. So in this book, the conflict is really, you know, it's external. This isn't about two people who are trying to figure out if they love each other. We know they love each other. They know they love each other. Everyone knows they love each other. This is about what happens when you've got two people who are strong in their bond. But, you know, real life continues to happen. And sometimes real life is like, hey, you thought life is going great. And here I am throwing you a curveball that happens to be on fire with, you know, some venomous um, like entrails sticking out and shards of glass. And it's also the size of... Um, the entire state of Colorado so you can't even evade it good luck you know what I mean like sometimes life is just crazy so y'all can be you know in your relationship and you know you know you're together and you're gonna get through this but life is like I mean let's see how hard it can get girls and boys and you know others and 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 you gotta figure that out and so that I feel like this book is really much about that which I kind of appreciate I'm not the biggest fan of you know relationships in peril like two people who are drifting apart and da, da, da. Uh, depends on the other but almost always I'm like nope don't really want to read it so sorry um but in this case but I do I don't have an issue when it's like two up when it's a couple dealing with like outside shit and figuring that out like oh something's trying to kill us oh okay 
I mean, this is an adventure, yes. But I'm like, you know, not worried that like, after all these years, so-and-so is going to say something, you're going to stop trusting them. And and no, that's not what we get here. Um, So, I mean, I almost always, I'm like, I love this book, but I really, really enjoy this book. Um, I think right now, because it doesn't, I mean, shit that's really bad happens, but it has such a like hopeful ending or, I mean, there's a brief moment where you're like, I mean, the little, literal last page is like, Ooh, there is definitely darkness on the horizon, but we're not there yet. And so right in the moment where the book ends, it is so hopeful and it's a, I feel like a really awesome sort of look at, you know, like what your family could look like. Because sometimes when our families don't look like what we've seen on TV and in culture, we can sometimes feel like we don't really have family. And then something comes along and we realize our family does, you know, just because it's not like a mother or father, you know, three children, one cat, one dog, a picket, you know regardless of what that family looks like, right? Even if it doesn't conform to what is expected, it doesn't mean that it's not equally as important. And so I feel like when we get to the end of this book, it's like, oh, yes. It's sort of warm, sort of hug. I mean, it's a series, so you know that there's going to be, you know, trials and tribulations to come. Because then if not, what would be the point of the the rest of the books? But it ends in a way that you're just like, I feel, I mean, I felt, I felt both satisfied. I was like, I need the next book. But I feel like I always feel like that with her. So anyway, I'm going to stop here and then I'm going to come back. And then when I come back, it's going to be a spoiler a city, spoiler central, spoilers all day. Okay, I'll be back. Okay, I'm back. And now it's time for spoilers of Archangel's Heart. So as I was talking, literally seven seconds ago, whatever, um, this concept of, you know, sex being tied to life or death and like, what does that then mean when we've got immortal characters um, really sort of resonated with me because I think it was like, oh, like, yeah, if you don't have to if you're not really worried about procreating in the same fashion, because in many ways, it's like if you're procreating because you want to leave a legacy, but like homegirl, you're going to live for 25,000 years. What legacy? What do you worry? What do you leave? What like doesn't mean you might not want a family, but like you're going to be around with them for 25,000 years. Like you are legacy. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you can leave you could potentially be, you know, learn every instrument there ever was and be a virtuoso at all of them because you have 25,000 years to motherfucking practice. So then you could leave, you know, the, it, it suddenly sort of changes this entire, you know, sort of concept of like, well, why would you have children or, you know, um, and that's if, and that's when we're talking about sex for procreation's sake, haven't even gotten into, you know, the idea of like sex for, you know, pleasure. Um, and then of course sex for power. And 
in a world where people live for so long or characters live for so long, what does sex for power look like, right? Is that when vampires are trying to get in with archangels or angels um, by using sort of sex as an avenue? Um, But how do you do that, right? If an archangel has been around for 8,000 years and you've been a vampire for 400 years, aren't you, like, what do you, it is possible that this archangel who's been around for 8,000 years is like, so I have done it, the sex, in every possible position. I've filled every single hole. Like, what do you got? What do you got that I haven't already? You got a third titty. <laughs> you've got a second dick. Like, you've got four vaginas instead of one. No, none of that's going on. So why would, why would that even entice me? But then the flip side of that is, when you are a being that has been around for so long, right? Where, you know, the freakiest shit even seems mundane and regular degular to you because, again, you've been around for forever and things that would, you know, like choke play, which sounds cool when, you know, the risk is you could die. But once you're a specific, like once you hit a certain like power level in this world as an angel, you don't like you pass out, but you don't die. Because the only way to die is to have like your head chopped off, spinal cord ripped out and heart ripped out. Usually like all three have to happen for you to like be dead, dead. Um, if you only rip out the spinal cord, but the head is attached and the heart is inside, they'll be going to your spinal cord. It'll be painful and take fucking forever, but it'll happen. So what are the, what exactly are the things that characters who have this level of boredom are going to do? And one of the things that we are shown in this series and specifically in this book, I feel like is for characters who have been around for a few thousand years and have such a level of power, you know, very often what they want is what they cannot have, right? It's not like the world is sparsely populated and there's only like 50,000 humans and shit. No, it's it's the world, from what we can tell, has this sort of the same level of population as our, our real world. So let, let's be conservative and say that there's only 5 billion people on the planet. And that includes angels, vampires, and archangels, right? But archangels are what? Ten. So clearly. But what that then means is you're going to have characters who are going to be looking and wanting what they cannot have. And then using the fact that they are so powerful because of their age, because of the amount of wealth they they often can amass because of their age to get what they want in spite of, you know, people maybe not wanting them. And we are shown this in Dimitri's book, right? The reason Dimitri is a vampire is not because Dimitri woke up one day and was like, I would like to be a vampire. It is because an angel took notice of him and wanted him. And he was like, thank you so much, but I'm married and I have two kids. And she was like, oh, yeah, I don't care. So let me just get rid of your wife and kids and trap you 
And actually, she took it one farther because she was like, I'll turn you and your son into vampires, which turning children is a big no-no. So Dimitri is a vampire who's been around for a thousand years, not because he woke up and was like, this is what I want, but because that choice is taken away from him by an angel who was like, I don't really care that you have thoughts and ideas of what you want to do with your life because I'm an angel and I have power so I'm going to take what I want because who's gonna punish me no one because I've got power and it's hard to kill me and you're just a mortal and no one cares about mortals and in this series right one of the reasons one of the things that Elena is doing is reminding Raphael and the people he is closest to so the angels and vampires that he is closest to, that mortals, regardless of the fact that, yes, they might die in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years, matter. And that having ethics and having honor and acting in a certain way is important, regardless of how long you are on the planet, right? It isn't one of those things like, you're honorable until you hit 612, and then you can descend into you know, fuckery. It's like, no, you can be an individual, a character who always conducts themselves with honor from, you know, the beginning through the middle to the end. So Dimitri is the first example. In this book, the example of like, holy shit, this fully like fuck someone's life over is actually Elena's grandparents. So if you've read the books, you know, and, and you haven't finished, right? You're, you're literally just got to book nine. We don't know much about Elena's mother's side because she grew up in, you know, sort of the foster system, I believe, in Paris because her mom passed away in a bus accident. That is what Marguerite is told. And that is what Elena knows from what Marguerite would tell her when she was alive, right? So when I'd mentioned earlier how like um, the the title of the book is Archangel's Heart, right? And in this book, we're finding out about Elena's mother's side. And Elena's mother, Marguerite, was the heart of the Devereux family when Jeffrey was married to her. Jeffrey married Marguerite, had four daughters with her, and she was the light and love of his life and then their two of their daughters were brutally murdered she wasn't able to she wasn't able to survive that she she wasn't killed in the in the you know inciting event but she wasn't able to deal with it and took her life and sadly elena is the one who finds her so Marguerite was the heart of the Devereux family that included Elena and Beth. And Elena is now the heart, you know, Raphael's heart and the heart of, you know, his family. Not to say like each as each of his, you know, men in the seven um, get their own partners. But it's almost like you can see how her coming into his life becomes the catalyst for all of them to start to sort of see, you know, I think because once you start to see examples of positive, healthy relationships, 
then you are then able better to like find and repeat that on your own. So in this book, we've got an angel. His name is Jian, Jian, Gian, Jonose. And because, you know, whatever is going on, you know, Li Juan, you know, after the previous book was injured when she was trying to kill Alexander in his sleep. So we're not sure. Is this bitch dead? Is this bitch alive? We think she's, you know, this book is very much like it's been, you know, a bit of time. Is it this one where it's like, it's been two years or was this? Let me double check. I'm pretty sure it's, um, pretty sure. Yes. So Alexander has been awake for two years. Li Juan hasn't popped up in this whole time, which, you know, homegirl was like, I'm a goddess. Y'all are, you know, must serve me. So if she hasn't popped up for two years, like, what is she doing? Where is she? And one of the things that this book sort of helps us to understand is, you know, archangels need to have their own territory because they have so much power within them. And when that power is close together, like it erupts into tension slash warfare because it's just too much power too closely together and it just causes friction, right? So Alexander's awake. He wants his territory back, but currently Favashi has that territory. So it's like, okay. And then on top of that, when you do not have archangels sort of at the top of the food chain in a territory, vampires, not all, but some are like, wait, who's going to punish us? A regular regular angel? I mean, they can, but only if they catch us. So let's go murder people. Let's let's give in to that bloodlust and just go like butcher people. And I, I mean, it's not like they wake up and they're like, and today we butcher. It's more like they give in to the bloodlust and then it's just a crazed sort of killing. So Raphael explains about how there was a time where, um, you know, a group of angels didn't want to be under an archangel and the archangels of that time period were like, okay, cool. And then they were not able to handle, keep the vampires in check because eventually the vampires realize, oh, if we get, if we nab you and hack off your wings, you can't fly and or do anything to us. And we can just, you know, murder with impunity. So with Li Juan not, you know, being around, it's like, oh, what do we do with her territory? Which it when she, you know, she's the Archangel of China, largest landmass, like physical, because it, I think she's the Archangel of China, but it's not just, she doesn't just rule China. Um, Japan was falling under her, but when Kalyan awoke, Kalyan sort of took over the island of Japan. So there's all these politics. So there's a group that called the Lumia or Lumia who can call the cadre to be like, what are we doing? Do we need to, we need to redraw, you know, the sort of boundaries for archangels. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that before this book, we haven't heard about these, these people, right? And again, as I've mentioned many times, because Nalini likes to show us a world based on the characters we're with, the Lumia really only have interactions with the Kadra. And since they hadn't called on the Kadra, why would we know about them? But now they have called the Kadra together. So we're like, oh, who are these people? And this is where it gets fascinating, to me at least. 
I don't remember which book it was. I think it was book three um, when Elena finds out that her father didn't actually get rid, like throw out all of the things that belong to their mother, her and Beth's mother, but put them in a storage unit. She goes with Raphael and he mentions that the blanket that she has, you know, has blood on it. And she's like, what? Like, it didn't get blood on it. He's like, no, whoever sewed this, like, was like had vampire blood in them or whatever she's like my mom like and he's like someone in her family tree must have been a pretty pretty strong vampire so fast forward to book nine and john is like looking at elena all weird and as we start to put the pieces together we realize that this man knew her grandmother right marguerite's mom and what ends up happening is a similar story to what happened to Dimitri, but it it worked out slightly differently, right? Dimitri wasn't able to get his wife and children away from the, the angel who ends up, you know, changing him into a vampire and killing them. Um, in Elena's grandparents' case, um, when Jean-Baptiste, that is the name of, of grandpa, goes missing... Majda grandma knows that she has to run she runs to Paris with her daughter now here's the thing the women in her family and Elena's all you know the last of them all tend to often have really light almost white hair with you know the darker skin that you find in um, the, the region around Morocco that's a pretty sort of significant look that's easy to be like oh you must be from the same family because most people don't aren't born with almost white hair um, that stays almost white. You know, there are people who are born with like, you know, such pale blonde hair when they're babies, but then they get older and they hit puberty and it darkens or whatever. But that's not the case. And so Masha runs away to Paris, but she one day realizes that there's an angel watching her, probably because Jeanne, the man, who, the angel who wanted her, said something to someone. And she ends up being caught. But she ends up being caught after she stashes her daughter at the church, which is why Marguerite is able to grow up, become an adult, marry Jeffrey, and have a daughter. So if you th- now that we know all of this, Elena is, right, Elena had a hunter grandmother because her mother, her, her father's mother was a guild hunter. And a vampire grandfather, right? So homegirl is hunter born, you know? And this is not like great-great-grandparents. This is just grandparents. So this is just one, you know, sort of generation removed. So similar to the angel who fucking ruined (laughs) Dimitri's life, Jeanne captures both Jean-Baptiste and... Uh, Majda, but he doesn't kill Jean Baptiste, which I thought was, you know, shows, you know, his um, arrogance, right? That, like, I'm not going to kill you, I'm just going to torture you, you know, and rape your wife in front of you because there's nothing you can do. Um, and oh, I totally forgot to mention the Lumia or the Luminata, um, they're supposed to be um, 
Oh, sorry. The place is called Lumia, but they are called the Luminata. And there is one Luminata who's supposed to be the leader. And the leadership is supposed to change every 50 years. But when we meet them, Jian has been the leader for 400 years, which is like, hmm. But I thought it was every 50. So what's happening? So these are supposed to be angels who are because you're supposed it's only open to angels you have to be at least a thousand years old so there's an age requirement and you're supposed to be looking for enlightenment and peace and all that you know all you know whatever you would imagine people who are part of a monk style brotherhood are looking for you know true peace the meaning of life etc etc except it's rotten at its core and clearly Jian and probably his predecessor were more interested in just having power and all of a sudden they can be in this space right they've got this gorgeous massive fortress thing they have no really oversight because no none of the archangels oversee lumia right the luminata oversee lumia and suddenly they can just do whatever they want um and jian was the second to an archangel so he had been in the same position as Dimitri. So he wasn't a weak little angel. This is someone who was able to command, you know, troops and territory and whatnot. So what we find out throughout this book is that Marguerite's grandparents, right, are tortured for, you know, as long as, you know, which I'm guessing has to be because Marguerite was human. Because yeah, that's the other thing. Vampires and human... Vampires can have kids until around 250. And I believe when Jean-Baptiste gets captured by Jean, he's in around the 200 mark. So... Or 250 mark. So that's why like, they have a daughter. And Majda was mortal at first. Like, she wasn't a vampire. He wanted to change her, but he wasn't, you know, well-known enough. Like, he had, hadn't been a vampire for that long. And Jian eventually is the one who turns her into a vampire because he wants to be able to, like, hold on to her for as long as he can. And if she's a regular human, she's going to die. And he's going to be, like, not going to have this woman that he's obsessed with um but it, it what i thought so one of the things that happens is that um he is like i'm interested and she's like i'm married and he's like oh okay and backs off and then because her husband jean baptiste is one of the vampires who is working at lumia because when Lumia was working, you know, not in a horrifying fashion, there were vampires and angels stationed there from the different territories as sort of like, like, you know, an assignment. Like you go and you're stationed at Lumia for two years or five years or 10 years um, and you, you know, learn and grow or whatever. Then we rotate, right? Because the brotherhood is supposed to just be there looking for enlightenment. So they can't like defend them or they're not, it's, they're not, the focus isn't supposed to be on them defending themselves. That's why you've got a, an angel squadron and, you know, vampire contingent to do all that. 
so then what happens is Gian is like, oh, homegirl said no to me, but like, I'm still a depraved little piece of shit. So I'm gonna tell her husband, like, I'll pay you if you just like give me your wife. And Jean Baptiste is like, what the hell? What? No, like, absolutely not. What's wrong with you, sir? Right. And so then, you know, he lets her know, like, if, if I disappear, you have to run. And she does run, but uh, like, as I mentioned already earlier, she is found. Um, And so this is another example with not as terrible an ending, right? Of how an immortal character who isn't, who doesn't have honor, who doesn't have um ethics who doesn't believe in you know being a good individual can wreak havoc right on people for years generations etc and can really sort of ruin so much of a family's history now the i guess one upside to this one or because Jean made Majda a vampire, right? Jean Baptiste and Majda are now together, and Elena, who is went from being a mortal to a, a whole ass angel, is going to have her grandparents with her for a much longer period of time, right? Which the rest of her mortal family, her sister, her half sisters, her father her friends in the guild are going to live their mortal lives and die because they aren't going to become vampires. They don't want to, or they're not compatible and they're not going to, you know, if all goes well, they'll hit a hundred, but you know, maybe 105 and that'll be it. But she'll have her grandparents who can like Dimitri lived a thousand or whatever years. So she'll at least have family, right? her grandparents with her for a much, much longer period of time. And I think that's really like the only sort of like raw, like positive point of like what happened in, in that, like, because they were able to rescue them from that awful place. Oh, cause they were at the, at the place. Um, she now has immediate family who will be by her side in a way that, everyone else she knows and loves outside of the people she's met through Raphael won't be because they cannot live forever um which is you know I mean it's bittersweet right you know you you get your grandparents but you know you know one day you're gonna have to bury your sister and one day you're gonna have to bury your sister's daughter or your niece and it's a really, you know, sometimes I feel like when I was younger, I would have, if someone had been like, do you want to be immortal? I would have been like, yeah, girl. And now I'm like, ooh, do I? Ooh, I don't know. It sounds a bit, hmm. Um, and then back to sort of that concept of like, you know, immortal characters that are just like, girl, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, we are shown that time and time again, I think, in especially in the series. Because I've read other paranormals. I feel like in paranormals where... 
the non-human beings still have regular-ish lifespans, you don't necessarily see this as much. Because if we think of Nolini's side changeling, right? Psy, changeling, and humans, like, everyone lives relatively around the same, like, age, like, has the same age. I think, like, changelings get to 150 max. Humans, I think, or more, yeah, regular humans, I think, are... 100 100 and change and from the side i don't remember if it's ever really talked about but i would guesstimate that it's probably like 100 and change to maybe 150 and everything that would kill a human kills them kills changelings and kills you know um side now there are thing changelings for example can get hit with bullets and potentially survive you know wounds that would absolutely be a death sentence for humans um and sire are actually the weakest in terms of like their physical body um because all of their powers are mental or whatever but none of the three sort of um races or character groups are just like ah you really can't kill me which that's not the case in the guild hunter series right in the guild hunter series once both vampires and angels hit a certain age i think it's like 300 and change for angels and 200 and change for vampires um it gets a lot harder to kill them um and so you can shoot them and the older that they are the faster that they regenerate and it really doesn't do anything um and you have to do a lot. So the kinds of risks that are taken, the kinds of things that are done are a lot more extreme in the Guild Hunter series and a lot more dark because you can they can survive, right? Um, Raphael punishes a vampire by beating, like every bone in his body is broken. And he's literally just a sack of skin and muscle, but he's not dead. A human would die. Like, you can, vampires can have punctured lungs and be, you know, literally, like, frothing, you know, blood at the mouth, and they don't die. A, a human can't do that. Punctured lung is pretty much going to kill you, or, you know, if you don't get medical attention. Um, and so, I feel like Dimitri and, in this case, Elena's grandparents are two cases where in some ways that awful wrong isn't righted because you can't erase the the pain of what of losing you know their family because you know Jean-Baptiste and Maja come back to New York to then you know find out Elena has to be the one to tell them that their daughter her mother is gone right she left two daughters behind because the other two were killed and so they've got you know two granddaughters and one great granddaughter because beth has a kid but they they don't have their daughter and they missed out on raising her and seeing her grow up and we don't we can't possibly know if marguerite had grown up with her parents would she have met jeffrey would they have had elena if if they had met and had elena would they have you know would Slater Patalis have shown up in their home and butchered the two oldest? We don't know, right? Because it obviously changes 
you know, the whole sort of course of history. And the same thing with Dimitri. I mean, he, Ingrid comes back as honor and they are able to now have a future together, but their kids are gone and he has had to go through a thousand years of being utterly alone, right? I mean, he has his friends, but that's it. So we have those two where it's like, okay, maybe a right has a wrong has kind of been righted, but we also have been shown examples. I mean, Michaela is an archangel who, like a lot of the men she sleeps with, you know, happen to die. Like, what girl? What are you doing, right? Neha, I mean, her consort did cheat on her with her twin, or however the hell that worked. Well, you kept him in prison for like three hundred years. Like, girl, what are you doing? You know, it's this level of like, oh, we're going to do really, really sort of cruel shit. Um, Nazarak, who's the angel. Nazarak is the angel of Atlanta um, because what's her face is the angel of New Orleans. He, you know, in the um, novella that she wrote, it's very clear that he's, you know, a really sort of creepy angel and yes obviously the punishments for beings that cannot die easily and live a really long time have to be really really wild or people are just gonna go buck wild right but there are clearly some characters that go you know beyond the pale right and then it's like this i concept of like because i'm immortal or near immortal i can just take what i want even when what i want doesn't want me has said no has a family, right? They're still, you know, like, I'm snatching and grabbing that anyway. And then, like, what does that mean? So I also think that this is a way to illustrate to Raphael. He knows, but it's another way to illustrate to him or illustrate the... Not to him. It illustrates how Raphael is different in some ways. Um, and is sort of this sort of honorable man in a way that a lot of the other characters, like in a way that we don't necessarily see with other of these angels, um, characters, because he has seen the damage of this quote firsthand now twice with Dimitri, his friend, and now with Elena, you know, Elena's family, his his concert, the love of his life. So this Raphael is the kind of character who is never gonna go down that road. Had Raphael not met Elena, and before, right when we first meet him in the first book, he is very close to that edge. He is very close to starting to become the kind of individual who maybe won't, you know, go and destroy a family because he just has to have a specific person but may turn a blind eye because mortals don't matter even though Demetri his best friend was once mortal because it's been a thousand years and you know you forget shit but what we are shown is that this once again reinforces to him why mortals matter and I feel like it's not just why mortals matter why there needs to be, you know, sort of balance, right? You know, everyone needs to be treated in a honorable and ethical way. Um, now, if they've committed atrocities, if they've committed crimes, they must be punished. And in some cases, the punishment is death. 
and so be it. But for those who haven't committed crimes and atrocities, they shouldn't just be treated in a piss poor fashion because you're upset, because you're angry, because you don't care, because you're bored, because you think it might be funny. Um, I think that we, and then as a sort of like message to the reader, obviously none of us are immortal and we're not about to be all like, I'm going to leave until, you know, 2344. Like, girl, no, we will all be dust by 2344. Um, since we're in 2020, that would be 344 years from now. Yeah, girl, no, we're definitely dust but I think one of the things that, that it lets us know as readers is that being honorable and not taking what isn't yours because you want it, right, um, is important. You know, understanding that you can't just have what you want because you want it. Sometimes you're not going to get what you want. That's life right? And that's okay. You'll still be fine. You'll still have a good life. Um, And I think, I think we also, you know, as we're reading, it's like, oh, because I mean, in some ways, it's like, well, you know, we're not these characters and we can't be, but we can understand that how important family bonds are, how important listening to your family and connecting with them can be and that your family doesn't have to look like a typical family because Elena of course has a very fraught relationship with her father but her family isn't just her father there is you know there is her younger sister Beth there are her half sisters Amy and Evelyn um there are now her grandparents. There are the seven. Um, at the almost at the very end, when um, Elena is taking the grandparents, uh, Jean Baptiste and Majda, to meet Beth, we find out that Beth. So in the two years since all of this has happened, Beth has had a child. So Elena has a niece. Um, and Beth moves from the house that she has with her vampire husband to another house because it has doorways big enough to fit Elena, right? And when the series first starts, Beth seems like the kind of character that's a little fragile, a little weak, isn't really necessarily going to stand up for herself, right? Her and her husband were both going to become vampires. He was impatient and didn't wait to find out if Beth would also be accepted as a candidate and he ends up being made into a vampire it turns out that she cannot be made because the toxin from the archangels that makes vampires will make like will either outright kill some people or make them like diminish capacity or make them insane so way way back in the day you know there was no testing and then you know you just had either an insane vampire that had to be put down or like someone who's a you know has a diminished capacity and whatever now of course there's like tests and so beth is can't ever become a vampire 
Um, and so, and then like Harrison, the husband did try to run out on his contract. Elena had to bring him back. And I was like, how could you bring him back? It's like, girl, he signed up for a hundred years. Like, you know, it would be worse if it wasn't, you know, I, I at least, you know, know him anyway. What I thought was really interesting is like, we, we are seeing, you know, Beth as a character growing, you know, growing in strength. Um, and some of that is attributed to the fact that she's now a mother and has, you know, um, that instinct to, you know, do what she needs to do for her and her daughter. But I think it's that, um, seeing what her sister is going through and what her sister is surviving is letting her know that like in her corner of the world, she too can like succeed and, you know, survive and do what she has to do. Um, and so we're seeing like this, yeah, we're seeing Elena now have this family that's, you know, grandparents, sister, half sisters, you know, a reluctant father because Jeffrey's still, ugh. um, and then a best friend, best friend's kid, and then the seven and their women, those who have them. Um, and so it isn't, you know, what you might picture, but that is okay, right? And I, that I also really appreciated. I feel like that was kind of a message that we were being told, like, okay, now you've got grandparents or, you know, and it is okay that this is not the perfect family, that it is imperfectly perfect. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to mention. Um, I think that's it. Oh, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned that like Jean-Baptiste was a vampire in Favashi's court, which I was like, oh, interesting. Oh, and like weirdly, um, the Lum, the Luminata had gotten rid of a bunch of vampires and angels from the different courts from the different archangels courts i think a total of 25 of them because they didn't want any kind of oversight and they knew that if they had people who weren't you know their little secret of them being like depraved little assholes then like they wouldn't be able to continue to do what they do and i'm just like that that also seems so like sad that like this group of men who were supposed to be you know in this space to find enlightenment and whatnot cut short the lives of 25 individuals who could have gone on to do really fantastic and great things because you know they're they're that terrible so I was like oh don't like any of y'all um but yeah I think that's all I think that's all I've got for y'all this week um about this book I'm gonna take a pause here and drink some water because I'm feeling slightly parched slightly parched and then i'm going to come back and uh, briefly talk about another book okay one moment just wanted to let y'all know uh tuesday which i believe is october 27th if i know what i'm doing and i know how to count uh yeah Tuesday, October 27th, uh, Jackie Lau's uh, book two in the Cider Bar, Sisters, um, comes out. It's his grumpy childhood friend. And 
so, so good. I mean, I'm pretty sure I've said this before and I'll say it again. I really love um, how Dracula portrays Toronto. I also really like that she's got heroines that feel so fucking like real and relatable. Like, like for real though, like Charlotte is, you know, she hates people. I love it because I too... I mean, I'm sure people are like, you don't hate people. Okay, girl. Um, But these characters feel contemporary, right? They feel like people I could come across in my day-to-day life. They don't feel like... Because sometimes I read contemporary romance. I'm like, oh, girl, this girl sounds stupid. Or this guy sounds dumb. Or this, you know, this character sounds weird. Or this character doesn't seem realistic to, like, legit real life that's not the case here I feel like she consistently gives us characters that I'm like oh I feel like I could be friends with this character I could meet people like this character I could you know know what I mean like I never read and I'm like oh seems a little far-fetched I'm always like damn this might even be too real but I'm still gonna read anyway because damn um so yeah his grumpy childhood friend out Tuesday. Really, really enjoying it. Um, also, she includes food all the time, which I fucking love. Makes me hungry, but that's okay. Because, like, what's wrong with one more snack? Literally, what's wrong with one more snack? Um, but, yeah, I'm really... Charlotte, I'm really, really, really liking Charlotte. Um and just like their journey together, it's just so like wonderful. So yes, that is out Tuesday, Tuesday, the day after the podcast comes out in case you're like, what day of the week is that? Because, you know, the days blend in together since things are a little, a little strange out there. Anyway, oh, and I did it last week. And I remembered to do it again this week. So I feel proud of myself. Um... Stealing the, what was, wait, what did they call it? The Happy Meal? But I'm not calling it that. Just three things I'm grateful for. Um, Three things I am grateful for this week. I was able to go and do early voting with what turned out to be a short line. Um, I was all like, oh no, I was here like an hour and everyone else has been like, it took five, it took six, it took seven. So like, I am so grateful that I was able to go you know, vote and it took an hour. Um, so thank you to the universe for that. That's the first thing I'm grateful for. The second thing I'm grateful for, um, my brother actually posted in his Instagram story, a Gary V video that like struck a chord and has me, you know, like thinking what my next step should be. And you might be like, Oh girl, like what? Um, if you haven't heard of Gary V, um, he is awesome. He's phenomenal. Um, he, the wealth of information that he shares is just incredible. Um, and it, the video, the clip is him talking to Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey, whatever, um, about the time when, about one time when Matthew left money on the table and what that means. Right. And it, I think it really struck a chord with me because Sometimes we get so like drawn into the money that we don't think about like what, like, will that money equal what we like will make us happy? 
So I'm really grateful that I saw that video because I it literally, I was like, oh my goodness. I needed to see this and hear this and like, yes. And the third thing that Esther is grateful for, and you're like, Esther, who is she? That would be me. I mean, most, t- most of the times y'all will call me Essie, but my full name is Esther. Anyway, the third thing that Esther is grateful for is that um, I was, uh, I got to go to my favorite coffee shop, Manhattanville, and get a maple spice latte with oat milk because yes, I'm bougie and I drink oat milk and it was delicious. It was like the best thing ever. Like it's, it was my first one of the season, um, but it was just everything I needed to be sweet, but not too sweet with, you know, spices and just, mm so so like you're probably like what but it was so good like it was so good I was so so pleased like it literally made my day and so of course I'm telling y'all because it was one of the things that I was grateful for this week um so yes that's it I have a wonderful week I mean you know do what you gotta do do what you can read what you can there are so so many amazing and incredible books um i have a copy of spoiler alert by um oh my god olivia dade (laughs) i almost forgot her name um i can't wait to read that um yeah i've got way too many books I, i oh i also it hasn't arrived yet but it has shipped i got a surprise box from love sweet arrow so i'm gonna try to do an unboxing of that i'm so excited i mean do I have hundreds of books I haven't read yet? Yes. Does that matter? <laughs> no, it does not. It does not. Who cares? Who cares? Um, but yes, take care. Um, be safe out there. Drink water. And I say that to you really because it's a reminder for me to drink water. And I thought I'd share. And I will talk to you guys. Oh, and next week, I'm probably doing book 10, which is Archangel Sven. Oh, yeah. I was just looking at the title. Like a dum-dum. Oh, lies. Archangel's Viper. Which, the main character in that one, one of them is Venom, so sorry. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that'll be next week's a book. So yeah, take care. Have a wonderful time. And uh, see you on these Twitter streets. You know, if you want. You don't have to. But if you want to, that would be awesome. Okay, bye.